put that there, put the lid on that, and we'll shush that. Okay. Here's some bars. Oh my god, they're wrapped in gold. I know. Just can't get enough of that. Very, very expensive. <laughs> Hi, I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and I'm inside the bustling kitchen of the incredibly talented Jessica Pedemont, known professionally as the chocolate artisan. Because with Easter just around the corner, I thought we should investigate how chocolate is made. We can open one up. Now this one, I believe, uh, has a lot of nib actually mixed through it because I can tell from the texture. Oh yeah. So this is probably like a 70, 75% chocolate. Then with the addition of another five to 10% of the nib. So it's like a double chocolate crunch. It's extremely difficult to concentrate on what Jess is saying when there's a double chocolate crunch slab of chocolate sitting in front of me. So I suppose oh. you should try some, right? Please. Yeah, there you go. Go for it. Here we go, guys. Mm. Oh my God. Up until this very moment, I thought I'd had real chocolate, but this, this changes everything. That tastes like mm. chocolate. Good, yeah. good, that's what we're aiming for. <laughs> Jess has over 20 years experience in the culinary arts and has traveled the world working, studying and teaching in some of the finest establishments in the industry. So yeah, she's an expert when it comes to chocolate. My fond affection of chocolate sort of happened when I went over to France for a competition, you know, with Australia um, in 2003. You know, all the chocolate shops over there, like jewelry stores and yeah, they're all beautiful and someone serves you that's got a lovely French accent and's worked there for 40 years and you're like, oh, this is just so... The man a movie? So, ooh, yeah, this was before that chocolate movie. I think that happened later. You know, the movie with Johnny Depp and Juliette Binoche that came out in 2000. Try this. What do you see, madame, in this? Just say the first thing that comes into your mind. A woman riding a wild horse? <laughs> The pepper triangle, that's for you. Tiny hint of chili pepper to play against the sweetness. Tangy, adventurous. Chocolate is valued and enjoyed by so many different cultures. I mean, it was even used as a form of currency by the Aztecs. And how about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? We've all got a bit of gluttonous Augustus gloop in us. I'm eating the Wonka bar and I taste something that is not chocolate. We knew Augustus would find the golden ticket. He eats so many candy bars a day that it was not possible for him not to find one. Now, just as chocolate doesn't contain any golden tickets, but some of her masterpieces do incorporate gold. I just wanted to do the high-end chocolate work. And, you know, you're just using all the finest ingredients and it's very expensive. All the nuts and the chocolate and the fruit and the pure, like nothing really is sugar is probably the cheapest thing. Yep. The most expensive and the most integral ingredient in chocolate comes from a plant. Chocolate is made from the beans of the cocoa tree, the aboma cacao. That's Professor David Guest from the University of Sydney. He's a plant scientist who has dedicated his career to protecting the cacao plant, the people who grow it, and essentially our supply of chocolate. So it's a, a rainforest tree. It originates in, in the upper Amazon area. It only grows in areas about plus or minus 10 degrees from the equator in the wet tropics. So it likes it hot? It likes it hot and wet. Yep. 
90% of cacao is grown on small farms in developing countries in these hot and wet conditions. Unfortunately though, David says farmers are losing up to 40% of their crop, which is about a million tonnes of cacao beans per year. But why? What else likes hot, wet conditions? Well, you know, pathogens. Pathogens are bacterium, viruses, and other microorganisms that can cause disease. It's growing in precisely the sort of area that, that the things that will attack it grow in. But, but what happens is that in the rainforest, it grows scattered. There might be a tree here and then another tree there. So it's scattered in a very mixed community of plants. And then when you cultivate it, of course, what you do is you grow cocoa trees next to each other in a high density. And so any disease that starts on one tree becomes an epidemic. It just spreads through the, the entire crop because you're intensifying the cultivation and, and it just creates perfect conditions for epidemics. It's like getting, you know, a bunch of people in a train or an aeroplane and one person's got the flu. Everyone will get it because they're so, so tightly packed together. David is a plant pathologist and he's focused on a certain pathogen that attacks cacao plantations around the world. It belongs to a genus that plant clinic scientists from the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, are also researching. The most common pathogen on cocoa is Phytophthora palmivora. The name Phytophthora literally means plant destroyer. Oh, wow, I right. never knew that. Phytothora. Right. right. Phyto is plant, thora is destroyer. You know, like Thor, the thunder god. Phytophthora certainly lives up to its name because it causes enormous economic losses on a variety of food crops around the world, as well as damaging natural ecosystems. But how was this plant destroyer created? In evolutionary terms, it's a straminopile which means it evolved from a, an alga. There's good evidence that as plants move from aquatic environments, from oceans and, and lakes and rivers and things onto the land, they brought these pathogens with them. Most straminopiles are photosynthetic, but Phytophthora lost its chloroplast and became a pathogen, which means that it, it no longer produces its own energy. It depends on parasitizing something else, in this case plants. Closely related to plasmodium, which causes malaria. Wow. Right, so malaria, they, they evolved from a common ancestor. Malaria evolved to become a pathogen of animals. Phytophthora became a pathogen of plants. feeding structures are filaments called hyphae so they can spread through the soil when they get into plants they can colonize the tissue and they reproduce by producing little spores called zoospores which are motile so they swim in water. Once these little spores come into contact with the host plant they germinate produce hyphae and then then rot the tissue. There's no coming back from it once it's in there. And the sky is not even the limit for this plant destroyer. So it lives in the soil and it can swim, but it can't fly. So how does it get up into the tree? And essentially what we think happens is that it, it piggybacks on insects. Oh my God. This is like, 
this you can't make this up no 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 nature's wonderful now david uses the word wonderful when we're talking about something that destroys plants so is phytophthora and other pathogens nature gone wrong apparently not the job of pathogens is to strengthen the population of the of the host because what pathogens do is that they you know it's, it's tough out there right they they eradicate the weak individuals so that the next generation is stronger okay yep that makes sense it's natural selection individual organisms with a particular genetic makeup produce more offspring than others in a given environment which leads to adaptations in that organism that allow it to survive while others perish. Diseases always exist. It's only when you put things, you know, in high density plantings, which we do in agriculture, that you get epidemics. I knew it was our fault. It always comes back to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. All Absolutely. Right. <laughs> Agri- I mean, it's one of the big problems. There's a few things that we've, agriculture's served us really well, uh, but there's some things we need to look at if if it's going to continue to serve us well. So when agriculture is serving us well, how exactly do you end up with chocolate from a cacao tree? There's so much that happens to this magical food before it ends up becoming chocolate. It's a tree that flowers, it's called coliferous flowering, which means uh, the flowers just come out of cushions directly on the bark. Um, You get a lot of flowers and perhaps less than one in a thousand of those flowers develops into a a little shirelle which is a baby pod which is sort of the size of a little finger and that over a period of four or five months that'll grow into a a ripe pod which is about the size of say an eggplant. These are pods. Ooh shake it shake it. Right we're back in Jess's kitchen and we're shaking some dehydrated cacao pods. They make for excellent maracas by the way but what's inside them? That? What do you think that looks like? That doesn't it looks like wool or marshmallows or like it big look- fat witchetty gum. Yeah, 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 yeah. That doesn't sound very appealing to the listeners, wherever they are. Yeah, so this is the natural fruit pulp around each individual seed. So I think it's like rambutan, mangosteen, lychee, like the texture and the look and a little bit of the flavour. It's quite deliciously tropical. Tastes nothing like standard chocolate profile everyone would associate with. And it's those sugars that are breaking down and developing and starting that fermentation process that starts to develop the flavour profiles. Even though fermentation is a common theme in food, I mean, think of beer and wine, for example, I still want to know how someone could have figured this out from a cacao pod. Now, normally what would happen is that that an animal would come and eat that sticky mucilage and spit the seed out, and that's how the seeds get spread around. But sometimes there'd be pods left uh, that no animal would break open, and so the seeds would get to ferment inside that pod. And someone came along and said, gee, you know, if you taste these fermented seeds, they taste really good. Okay, quick recap. If a cacao tree manages to survive without being wiped out by the plant destroyer pathogen, it might produce a pod every one in a thousand flowers or so, which hopefully has beans inside that can ferment if animals don't get to them first. Tough, right? But my friends... This is only part of the chocolate making journey. So you take these little beans that are fresh, you um, ferment them for four or five days, you then dry them, and if you dry them in the sun, that's the best way to do it, that gives you the best flavour. And if they go mouldy, then you lose them because they're 
they develop off flavours. So then the beans are further processed. They're processed by they're gently roasted and then they're cracked into what, what are called nibs. Those nibs are about 50% butterfat. Oh yeah, it's time to talk about nibs and butterfat. These are the beans in a jar and then inside is the nib. The nib is what we grind up and put into the chocolate that we all know and love. Right, Jess has got me working in the kitchen now and I'm tasked with gently breaking away the husk from the nib. Yeah, here we go. Oh, I just broke yeah, it all. Yeah, oh, right. no. Yeah. <laughs> you will not get a job. <laughs> oh, no. uh, yeah, probably won't quit my day job anytime soon, but lucky there's a machine to do this properly. We have machines that do this and it'll actually crack the nib inside, crack the husk just like you did. <laughs> so it goes into this machine and then it will have a vacuum that sucks at the right particle content, the husk away, leaving the nib. We take this nib inside and then we put it into our melange. Melange. Yeah, <laughs> it's the French word. It's very French. Very cute under here and very noisy. Yeah, so in there there's a stone base and stone rollers. And what we do is we heat this up so it's nice and warm. Chocolate likes a nice warm hug or it's gonna set, but you can burn it quite easily too. We put in our nibs and that'll grind it, grind it, grind it, grind it, grind it. So you're wanting it as like a very fine dust? If you get it under 20 microns, the palette won't be detecting any particle and that is considered desirable, but it depends what sort of chocolate you're making. You might want texture. Texture, flavour, I mean, there are so many different types of chocolate. We're working directly with the farmers. I've met them, I've seen them, I've been in their spaces, I'm seeing what's going on. To put your hand on your heart and know the actual authenticity of where the product's coming from, that's really what it's about. So we will name the chocolate after the farmers, like Leonard or Agnes, and this is Kebu. Jess actually pays four to five times the base price for her beans to better compensate farmers. But not everyone's as dedicated to responsibly sourcing beans and a majority of cocoa farmers around the world are earning less than a dollar a day. They're very, very poor, which is sort of ironic given that we, in the West, we think of chocolate as a luxury food, but the people who grow it are living in abject poverty most of the time. I do a lot of training with farmers. You know, you need to prune your trees and, and cut the weeds down and implement good sanitation. So if you've got diseased pods, get rid of them. It takes about two hours a day for a hectare of cocoa to do that. And if you do that, you'll quadruple your yield. So this is a way out of poverty. David spent so much time in regions such as Papua New Guinea training farmers. He's even picked up a bit of one of the 800 or so local languages there. You know, if I'm talking to a cocoa farmer in, in Papua New Guinea and explaining what Phytophthora does, I'd say, well, dispel a fungus, you can kill him na bugger him up them pods. This is, this is pidgin English. Right, right? So go again, go again. Dispel a fungus. Right, so this, this fungus, yeah, it can kill him, not bugger him up, it <laughs> can kill or destroy uh, yeah. cocoa pods. Right, dispel a fungus, he can kill him, not bugger him up, them pods. Pretty impressive, right? However, billions of dollars have been spent on trying to improve farming practices, but over the past 40 years, there's been no change in yields. Why? I stumbled across a statistic. Uh, published by the World Health Organization. 
And so in Papua New Guinea, it's about 28% of their time, people are too sick to work. We've now surveyed 12,000 cocoa farmers in Papua New Guinea. Something like two-thirds of the children are stunted. It means they're malnourished. Being malnourished means that you're much more vulnerable to a lot of other diseases. But the problem is that, that what we tend to do in our aid program is to build hospitals. And hospitals only treat people who are already sick. Yeah, it's not a preventative approach. And David says the cost of getting to hospital is about $4 one way, which, remember, is about half a week's earnings. If you look at the demand for chocolate, we in Australia eat something like six kilos of chocolate a year. Um, Europeans eat double that. Growing economies like China and India, they eat maybe 20 or 30 grams. So if they start eating as much chocolate as we do, then where's, where are all those beans going to come from? Now, they can't come from West Africa anymore because there's no more rainforest to cut down there, essentially. Something else that's startling is that most of these cacao farmers have never eaten chocolate. But Jess tries to change that when she visits their communities. All of these things that I did for them, I mean, they'd never... Never experienced anything like it. Do their eyes just light up? Oh like, my gosh, I've never seen a class eat so much stuff. I'm like, here, eat, eat, eat. Okay, but before we can eat, 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 there's still more to be done in Jess's kitchen before we've got chocolate. Now we've cracked the husk from the nib, ground down the nib in the fancy French machine, the melange. You still with me, guys? Here's what's next. And then we set it into blocks and we age it. So they believe that chocolate can develop its profile with some aging. We usually do about three weeks on average. You know, it can just stay there and develop. And then once it's ready, then we will temper it. Tempering is a process of heating and cooling used in many industries like steel making. For chocolate making, it gives it that crisp, satisfying snap when you bite into it. Now Jess is using a traditional method of pouring the heated chocolate onto cool marble. I don't measure it. I do, I guess just by eye. Okay, pouring chocolate pouring onto chocolate. the marble. <laughs> Refrain from putting your fingers in it. It's really hard. Oh, it's so hard because it smells and it looks so good. So I'm spreading and scraping. And by doing this art of tempering, we are bringing back the crystalline arrangement of perfectly tempered cocoa butter, which is really what's in the chocolate. After all the spreading, the scraping, spreading, the scraping, the cooled chocolate goes back into the bowl. All right, so we give that an amazing stir before we start checking any temperatures. And we wipe off what's on the palate. And lick our fingers. No, we oh. do not. What happens at home stays at home. Damn. Yeah, it was, it was worth a shot. Oh my God, okay. Okay, so we managed to get it all in the piping bag, which is good. And, um, you know, just for kicks, because I know you get excited over a bit of gold. <laughs> We have special <gasps> air atomizers, so it doesn't change the flavor of the product, but it's just gonna give it a bit of zhuzh. We're gonna zhuzh our chocolate. Now Jess is spraying edible gold glitter on the inside of the molds. And now it's time to pour the chocolate. So you ready for this? I'm so ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and we're off. 
Pipe some chocolate. Oh my god, it's so cool. Cool, and then we're gonna tap. The fresh chocolate is in the moulds and Jess is pretty forcefully tapping them on the bench to even out the substance. Now, it's my turn. Lovely, good job. See, I didn't even show you how to do that. Is that right? Now what do you do? You quickly got to tap. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> almost forgot the most important part. And now we can take some of our fancy little gold nibs. Oh, sprinkling it over the yeah, top. Yeah, that's it which this technically becomes the back of the chocolate, but that's all good. We want it to look pretty from both sides. Make it rain. <laughs> that's so cool. Good oh, job. Oh, kind of bad. <laughs> oh, you know, we can just, there's nothing wrong with a bit more. Oh, wait, I'm gonna try that. Yeah. Oh, no, oh, okay. what a mess. To the fridge. And that's pretty much it, because once they've set, they're ready to come out of the fridge. So from the beans of Kebu's cacao plantation to the beautiful gold-dusted bars we made today in Jess's kitchen. That's a little insight into how chocolate is made. And making the chocolate is just part of the journey. So if we're considering all of the environmental and humanitarian issues surrounding chocolate, what's the outlook? I don't think we'll ever run out of chocolate. But of course, what happens if, if the demand is way higher than the supply is that it'll become a luxury product. Uh, chocolate is really just a, it's, it's really just a case study of food generally. You know, if, if farmers don't get good prices for the foods that they're producing, they'll do something else. The very clear message that, that I get all the time is that we need to support our farmers to keep producing good quality food Otherwise, I'll go out of business and, and then what do we eat? Thanks for listening to this sweet and hopefully eye-opening episode of Branch Out. Now, David's research has been made possible thanks to the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. And, you know, I hope this wasn't a total downer for you, but if you want to try and enjoy your chocolate a little more sustainably this Easter, a small step is looking for a Rainforest Alliance sticker. Next episode, we're exploring plant intelligence. You'll hear from Dr. Monica Gagliano, an amazing evolutionary ecology researcher who has appeared on one of my favorite podcasts, Radiolab. Her groundbreaking experiments are proving that plants can think, feel, and learn. If I was the plant, what would I want to listen to? Where is my food? <laughs> who is going to eat me? And who is going to help me to reproduce? I went for the food. And of course, water is one of those that is always moving. I actually had water, real water, running through a pipe. I put them in a maze. They had two choices. Like either you go towards the, where the sound of water is, or where the pipe is, or you can go the other way. And the plants are like, Phew, I can hear it over there. You'll also hear from Associate Professor Marianne Irish, a cognitive neuroscientist leading the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Now she's going to balance the discussion by giving us a little insight into how the human brain works and how we as humans learn behaviour. People tend to think of memory as being like, you know, a filing cabinet. And we can sort of dip in through the archives, pull out perhaps a video and replay it. But now we actually know that memory is reconstructive. There is no video. Actually what the brain is doing is reassembling trying to recreate the original pattern of firing 
that happened during the original experience. And we're still trying to understand exactly how all of these things are happening so quickly to enable us to have that feeling of subjective reliving. You don't want to miss this episode, so make sure you hit subscribe. In the meantime, head to the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney's website and check out what scientists are doing at Plant Clinic to protect our native flora and food crops from the onslaught of diseases like Phytophthora. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and I produced this episode of Branch Out. <laughs>